Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM in the AM. We spoke with David Mandel before the brand new year, CEO of OHEL. Here's that conversation on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Thursday morning broadcast, JM in the AM, an opportunity for us on this Thursday morning to speak with the chief executive officer of OHEL Children's Home and Family Services, our good friend David Mandel. Uh, we felt we should uh, wrap up the five seven eight one year with greetings from David and a uh, and a statement or analysis or discussion about just how crazy this year five seven eight one has been and how organizations like his are at the forefront, literally on the front lines of helping people in our community. David Mandela, pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you and? All your listeners and your family doing. All your family and your listeners doing. Baruch Hashem, we're fine over here. I hope all the listeners are fine. I know that people are in, a, are in very challenging situations this morning. And David, you've seen, we've all seen challenging situations close up front and personal over the last year and a half. But I can only imagine what your staff and volunteers have gone through over the last 12 months during the year 5781 to try to help people and families in unique situations and challenges. Is there a way to sum up the way this past year has been? I'm smiling, thinking how you just introduced me, that David Mandel will wrap up and summarize what this crazy year has been like. And you'd like me to do that in about three minutes, of course. <laughs> if possible. <laughs> okay, so maybe for the beginning of the new year, introduction can be, David, maybe you can summarize how wonderful the coming year will be, God willing, in three minutes. Now, I was just on the phone with a, with a, with a woman I'm trying to help us through a difficult situation moments before I called you, and she said, my life is one long, constant state of anxiety. Uh, yeah. Those are her words. Yeah. And I don't know that many people may have said that a year ago, but how many more people are saying that this year? Yeah. And hopefully that can change. So one of the things that I like to say to people during their most difficult moments is take a moment and tell me something good that happened to you this past year. Give me a silver lining in your life that happened in COVID. Because there are always good things that happen, even in the most difficult moments. One example might be what happened last night. There were so many people that were flooded. Unfortunately, some people lost their lives in New York and New Jersey yeah. and around the country. And people lost their possessions. One of my colleagues was saying to me this morning, how uh, she took a family in last night in New Jersey, and they're devastated, and they are losing their possessions in the flood. <sighs> Thankfully, the family is safe, and everyone is safe and good. So, you know, in the darkest moments, we have to find the silver mo the silver linings. Now, the person you were on the the person you were on the phone with was she able to find something good? So I asked her. You know, in the conversation. Listen, in these moments when someone is telling you what's going on in their life, you don't 
You don't um, try to turn the life around. Uh, you're not doing therapy. Uh, you're taking a moment to help them breathe, right. literally to help them breathe. And so my style is to keep a person on the phone, engage them in a conversation, and they do say, they do say something positive that's going on, even if it takes a little prodding. What did you do yesterday? What are you doing today? You see? There you go. That's something good. David Mandel's with us, CEO at OHEL. Uh, is, is this episode of Hurricane Ida and the way it affected New York and New Jersey something that would uh, trigger calls to your trauma unit? Do you expect today to be a busier day than yesterday at OHEL? Dr. Norman Blumasol, OHEL's director, the Zachary Chair in Trauma, is putting out guidelines for individuals that will cover several points. How to speak to your children during these difficult moments, especially for individuals that experience Hurricane Sandy in New York, New Jersey, on the East Coast. This can bring back memories. People who've lost their houses, yeah. people who lost their cars, people who lost their possessions who were flooded out, people who had to move that was in October, Nachum, you remember, yeah. on a Sunday night, Monday, and people moved into different families, and uh, my wife, Susan, and I had some families living by us temporarily. So those people especially experienced. And you have to overlay this, what's going on right now, of course, with COVID and the variants. And I try not to even, you know, mention, target the names, but people are wondering, are they going back to shul? Are they davening in a tent? Yeah. All the vaccinations. So my comment to people is, whatever you do, make a decision. Keep in mind that whatever you're discussing, your children are hearing, you're saying, they're going to experience their anxiety or not. <laughs> You know, they may not care at all. Children happen to be very resilient. They move on, and they just can't get into these conversations. They need to get back to their normal life at school. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned about kids, and uh, the, 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 my, my son's school is closed today because of all the flooding in the building. And the videos, of course, of the gym being completely flooded are going out. All, you know, today, today every, every, obviously, everyone around the world sees everything in a moment's notice. And I wonder that even kids who are in families where they were unaffected by the events of the last 24 hours, when they see their school like that, that might give them anxiety, might make them sad, because that's a place that, you know, is a safe place and a wonderful place for them every single day. So no matter what, you never know what's going to trigger some anxious behavior among youngsters. As much as kids may comment about, you know, not being in school and you know, all the right. difficulties in school. <laughs> right. Those are all <laughs> normal comments that kids say during their childhood and adolescence. Yeah. They don't want to be home on Zoom. They want to be in school. Yeah. And they I mean, want to be with their friends, and they want to have a structure. Kids need and like structure. Yeah. Even though they complain about it. And I would bet that the building is a really important place for them. No, no doubt about it. Uh, David Mandel with us live via telephone, and I, and I saw overnight, because I, I was already sleeping last night, but I saw my family was going through a whole 
situation where they were trying to save one of our cars, <laughs> which was being submerged. And, and, and the discussion was, is it Sandy-like? Like, like in New York and New Jersey, that's the standard, David. Is it as bad as Sandy in terms of where the car is standing? It just shows you just how much of an effect it had. That episode from back in 2012 had on all of us in this area and obviously in our community at large because a lot of people in our community uh, at that time uh, were affected. Dave Mendel is with us. All right, so um, going now back to the general discussion, and I know it's impossible to sum up 5781, but one of the things we can say about your organization, and we speak about OHEL on a regular basis here, one of the things we can say is that um, th- there are situations and challenges that you probably never imagined that became real situations in 5781. Um, family situations that would never have gotten as bad, unfortunately, as they became because of the COVID situation, um, uh, stress and uh, and and um, other psychological type problems that people suffered that likely would not have happened if not for the pandemic or wouldn't have been as acute if not for the pandemic. So that whole concept alone must have made 5781 a much greater challenge for you and your staff. Well, the best example of that, Nachum, is the one word that we've used constantly, anxiety. Right. You know, people talk about trauma, and of course people experience trauma, and if you lose your house, and uh, you lose your possessions, and you lose your job, certainly those are traumatic events in life. Possibly the single biggest change that we've experienced in OHEL um, is in relation to anxiety in the following way. In the hundreds of calls that we get every single week, every single week in the hundreds of calls, new calls, new individuals, new families, on average, one of three calls previously or related to anxiety right. at any age, right. at any age, whether it's young children, adolescents, adults, the elderly, anxiety. In the year 5781, in the past year, that changed from one out of three to two out of every three calls <sighs> across all ages. So if you generalize that across all ages, across all families, across all communities, New York, New Jersey, up and down and anywhere around the country, schools, that is a very dramatic change. So the message to families is anxiety can be very short-lasting, like many other ailments in life. Like a cold, like a flu, it comes, you deal with it, and it goes, but it could also leave an impact. You know, COVID has taught us so many things. People, thankfully, never had it. People had it. People recuperated, recovered. Some, unfortunately, many died, and many have lingering effects. Not to make the analogy to anxiety, but it is important for parents and families to understand what their children experience, what they themselves experience, and if they feel lingering effects, 
take care of it. Maybe it'll go away on its own, but for many, they need some assistance. That maybe is the singular message from 5781. To check yourself, look within yourself, and where you need, get assistance. OVEL is certainly an organization that specializes in this work and that helps many thousands of people. No question about that, that we know, and uh, they've been doing this for over 50 years and doing it very well. And if you insist, Mr. David Mandel, before we wish you a happy, healthy, sweet new year, if you insist on talking about something positive and good, I do have reports from up in the Catskill region that Camp Cayley, which is, of course, an OHEL project, had a banner season. Hard to believe any camp could have a banner season during this year with everything you have to worry about health-wise and protocol-wise. But mazal tov to you and the entire staff. It sounds like it was a wonderful summer. Baruch Hashem, countless times we were full, not a single open bed throughout the summer. Ellie Brazil, the wonderful, amazing director of Camp Cayley, and David Shafid, the assistant director, and all the staff, Aaron Rosenfeld, the head counselor, and Tova Polikov, the head counselor. Not from the letters we received were just remarkable from all the parents. We had a special occasion on Cayley Day to present to Gloria Cayley a book of letters from parents. We had, thankfully, a wonderful, successful, safe summer, thank God. We opened registration last Thursday, and in the last week, Close to 300 people registering boys and girls for next summer, God willing, in a short while. I don't want to say anything ahead of ourselves. It was a banner year, thank God, and we're looking forward to a very special 5782-2022, God willing. I told you, folks, told you we'd come up with a good piece of amazing news to share with you this morning, and that is... A good piece of amazing news. David Mandel, CEO at OHEL Children's Home and Family Service. I take this opportunity, David, to wish you a happy, healthy, and sweet new year to you, the staff, the volunteers, everybody who's on the front lines to help our community really worldwide in your capacity, but especially here in the New York, New Jersey area uh, all through the year. And, yes, let us hope it's a safe, peaceful, and 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 uh, less stressful 5782. Welcome to you and your family and to your listening audience. A wonderful, safe, happy Healthy, sweet new year, and we. David, you there? Did we just lose David? Oh yeah, yeah. All right, I I'll have to assume that he was going to end with a with a nice blessing for uh, for a wonderful five. He's already into the nice blessing for five seven eight two, but I would imagine he was just going to add to that. And wish us well, and we wish him well and the entire OHEL organization well. A Thursday morning broadcast with plenty more coming up here at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with David Mandel, CEO of OHEL. The leader of Our Torah Stone is by Dr. Kenneth Brander. He joined us for Rosh Hashanah greetings and to discuss the impact that Our Torah Stone is having worldwide. Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander, my guest on a recent edition of JM in the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network.
Rabbi Kenneth Brander is with us live via telephone, president and Rosh Yeshiva of Or Torah Stone, based in Israel, but having an international impact like you cannot imagine. I was just uh, sent this week the impact report for 2021 that Or Torah Stone has released, discussing what they're doing in Israel and what they're doing around the world, and it is simply an incredible institution with an amazing reach. And uh, Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. It's a pleasure to uh, spend time with you, although we look forward to, uh, please God, you coming back here soon. I hope I uh, hope definitely. it happens soon. I know that I can't say it too often because I sound like a big shot because I was just there in July. But when you say come back, I know what you mean. You mean to come and visit and spend time and speak a little bit on the air. You mean you mean to do things the way we used to do things. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. You know, you invited me to do things. You know, I, I think it's uh, you know forty years from now or something like that. We have a a date, but I'd hope uh, to see you sooner than that. Wow, you remember that, huh? That's pretty amazing that you yeah. remember that. <laughs> you know, this time of year, I, um, I I reunite with certain friends, and they tell me about their experiences with certain rabbanim, certain teachers, mentors, great rabbis during this time of year. And I know I'm throwing you completely off here, because we do have an agenda I'd like to get to, and I know, I know you'd like to get to. Uh, but I was just thinking, you spent so much time with Rabbi Soloveitchik. You had such an incredible uh, and wonderful experience, probably a, an experience collectively that was life-changing for you and something you think about quite often. I'm wondering if Elul was something that was an enhanced experience when you spent time with him, or he was so, he was so um, uh, 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 I don't know if I'd say regimented, but, but, his, but his life always seemed so... Uh, a carefully calculated that Elul was not much different. What would you say about your experience this time of year with the Rav? Well, you know, when I was hearing Rabbi Goldwasser a few moments ago, when he was speaking about the uh, two paradigms of tshuva, uh, tshuva from fear and tshuva from love, I was remembering that this really was the ideas of Rabbi Soloveitchik, whether it was based on the Rambam and the movement within the ten chapters of the Rambam of Hilchus tshuva, um, whether it's uh, <clears throat> the fact that the Rambam, that Rabbi Soloveitchik, whether it's an Awachuva or an Uvikashta Misham, which is the continuation of Ishalacha, where he speaks about the idea of a loving relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, of a romantic rendezvous with God, of the idea of being able to feel that God is, you know, holding your hand and, and, and stroking you. And um, I think those were the messages that Rabbi Soloveitchik, you know, c- communicated to us during the month of Elul. And that is uh, the idea that it's in our hands to have a connection to a Kaddish Bar- Baruch Hu. And I think that that, to me, is really the messages that, even when I heard Rabbi Goldwasser, the first thing that jumped to my mind was uh, those were the messages that we were taught. And those are very critical messages for us to realize, I think, especially, you know, in this generation where I think people view uh, uh, Yira, fear, as a form of of trepidation um, and paralysis as opposed to a form of awareness or a a, uh, conduit through which one can engage in a relationship with God. 
And that was really Rabbi Soloveitchik's message, that tshuva shouldn't paralyze us, it shouldn't get us depressed, but rather it's an opportunity for us to re-engage and in our relationship with God, because God has faith in us. Yeah, and, it's, and it's, I think that that message... And it's interesting in, because in I, I, I think it was Rabbi Gitnak who has said on these airwaves... Um, that, that, and again, I got to be careful how I say this. I'm not sure I'm describing it, you know, properly, but he would say something like Yom Kippur was the Rub's favorite day of the year. And based on what you're saying, you know, that type of thing, I, I don't mean it to sound so, you know, conventional, but I, I think based on what you're saying, it makes sense uh, that he, he wanted to reach the greatest spiritual height and the, and, and the day or the time when one feels closest to the one above, right? That was a key for him and, and, and what day could possibly uh, represent that more than Yom Kippur. Right. And Reverend Soloveitchik, uh, you know, wrote many books, including the Kuntras, uh, a, really a digest on the avoda of Yom Kippur and of the temple service on Yom Kippur and would speak about it. Again, speaking about this idea that um, the opportunity that we have to create a relationship with God, the fact that the Kabbalists compared uh, Yom Kippurim a day like Purim, because on Purim we were able to reinitiate a relationship with a Kaddish Baruch Hu, even though God is not found in the Purim story. And that's really what we have to try to achieve on uh, Yom Kippur itself. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right, Dr. Kenneth Branders with us, of course, or Torah Stone, our focus. Um, he is uh, in Israel as we speak and leading an organization that's having worldwide impact, to say the least. I think the last time we spoke, if it wasn't the last time, then it was certainly the last major topic you and I covered, was Artura Stone's outreach to the city of Lud when Lud was being overrun by rioters and the synagogues were being damaged and people's lives were, um, uh, were being threatened. I know Artura Stone had a role in the recovery process. Could you give us an update on what's happening with that? Yeah, um, thank you. We have actually a one of our branches of our seminaries is there. We have a group of uh, 50 women who sit and learn there a day and night uh, for a year and a half, and then most of them uh, either go into the Army in special units that we have worked out with the Army, most of them in intelligence or as teachers in the Army, and then some of them also going into Shirut Lumi, but they spend a year and a half uh, in learning, um, and uh, obviously they came back in full force uh, last week. In fact, uh, the Minister of the Interior, Ayelet Shaked, uh, came the first day at her request um, to uh, to come and, and open open the uh, limud for Elul, um, which was wonderful. And um, we're we're doing more there. Our students are interacting with both. Uh, Jewish Israelis who live there, especially those who are at risk, youth at risk, to help them. They take a few hours a week, and they leave the base medrash to engage in service. And also working with uh, Israeli Arabs in this blended community with all of the challenges that they know better than anybody else, because many of my faculty, uh, their homes were uh, destroyed, their cars were incinerated, but there's still this vision of trying to help all. Rabbi Salvechik used to tell us that if non-Jews knew how much in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the Mazdar written by the rabbis, spoke about engagement with all of society, 
non-Jews would print would publish the Mahler. Wow, a, what a great a joke um, <laughs> that he would say. Um, and I think that the Lord uh, celebrates that idea. Uh, first of all, Limud HaTorah, um, as necessary to build themselves and their character before they enter into service, into the IDF. Um, and uh, at the same time, working with uh, young people, especially those in Limud, who are at risk because of poverty, because of crimes at home, because of parents who are sitting in jail and not at home, uh, and working with them so that they have an opportunity to exit the, the cycle of poverty. So I'm very proud of these women. They're, they're serious. Um, please, God, between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, I'm going to have the privilege uh, to talk to them about some of the issues we talked about, the Yerushamayim and Avas Hashem and the movement scene in Rav Kook and the Rav and the Balei Kabbalah and Shulchan Aruch and are, are things re- um, Are things relatively quiet there now? Well, I, I think that everybody is being careful. Right. You know, I don't think it's fully quiet. The things that, you know, everyone's being extremely careful. We want to make sure that our, that our students are safe. We want to make sure that uh, our, the families are safe. We want to make sure that everyone is safe. So they have protocols that they put into place, um, and they're they're taking it out quite seriously. Um, but uh, you know, in Lod, you have two two issues you have to be concerned about, and that is concern number one is for the riots, and concern number two is that when missiles are sent from Gaza, um, one of the their targets is the center of Israel, and Lod is in that center of Israel. Yeah. So. Um, they can get pounded in two different ways, but Baruch Hashem, at this point in time, everything is, is quiet. Also near the airport, always an attractive uh, target for the terrorists. Rabbi Kenneth Brander is with us live via telephone from Israel. I know today's September 1st, so officially it's the first day of school in Israel. Have your seminaries, including the one in Yushalayim, opened already? Yeah, they all opened earlier. You know, we're more uh, LO-based. Right. Um, they opened a week ago or so, and so, so, did, the day, so did the high school. You know, our high schools have, Baruch Hashem, continued to grow. We have 4,000, a little bit more than 4,000 students in our high schools. But we had to add to incoming classes, you know, a few new grades because uh, having so many kids on a waiting list is just not, I think, fair. Um, Baruch Hashem, that seems to be uh, doing well. Um, it, again, it, you know, it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not inexpensive to open up a high school. <laughs> No, no, it's, and the expense, and thank God the government helps, but when you go from, let's say, 60 kids in a grade to 90 kids in a grade, the, the expense is really hidden the first two years because right. when your base measures can hold 450 students, so okay, so you figure out how they, it can hold 480. But in two, three years from now, when that number grows by 90 because you've accepted 30 new kids a year, and now you're, you know, at three years like that, that base measure or that auditorium can no longer hold 90 more kids. And that's when the costs become a little bit more challenging. It's not about buying some more falafel or salad <laughs> or things of that nature. It's about, it's about figuring out a way to expand the, the portals of your, of your institution. But listen, everybody wants these challenges. And, and London Baum, uh, our American program is also packed. Uh, 50 young women who have come to sit and learn. 
Uh, I too look forward to spending some time with them between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. But Baruch Hashem, the schools are doing well. And, you know, as you know, we are very much uh, work with around 400,000 secular Israelis. If there is such a thing as secular Israelis, right. 400,000 people are not formally affiliated. And we'll have 230 locations for them to hear shofar in the park, working with our friends in Sohar. And we expect around 22,000 people to join us on Rosh Hashanah, um, you know, in 230 locations. How uh, many? Thing, how many? 230, sorry? you said? 230, you said? 230 locations. Wow. That's what the... So people yeah. will be gathering together to hear a chauffeur. That's what you mean when you say no such thing as a secular Israeli, because so many of them will make right. sure that even if they're not specifically in synagogue, they will spend the day with the mitzvah of the day. And, of course, that would be chauffeur this right. coming Tuesday and Wednesday. Right. Unbelievable. Wow. Right. And the only reason why it's 22,000 and not 30 or 35 is because, you know, it... it uh, you know, we don't know what the protocols of the government are going to be about how many people we right. could bring there. Right. Uh, because, you know, if it's only 50, that's what we expect. But if they allow us to have 100, I don't think that number will double, but it will definitely increase even you know, even, 10, even outdoors, even outdoors, they're worried about close yeah. gatherings? Yeah, there, there, there's still protocols about how many they want in one particular location. And obviously, we're not going to ask people. Yeah. To uh, show us their cell phones with their right. uh, Javier Rope, their right. ring passport. <laughs> Even though most of them will have their cell phones on them, we're not going to answer them. Are all your so, are um, all your are all your foreign students already out of quarantine? Yes, they're all out of quarantine. So that's good. At least okay. at, at least you have that comfort, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, the, the, we have very different protocols. Ministry of Education protocols for the high schools. The protocols are different for your post-high schools because the Army has something to say with your head there, you should vote, and others about what the protocols are. But essentially, you know, they're all like one castle now because they're in yeshiva, right. uh, you know, both the young men and the young women until, until Rosh Hashanah or until Yom Kippur. So uh, no one's leaving. So it's like a secluded uh, place. And um, everyone has... You know, m mostly everybody already has their third vaccination from the faculty, right. let alone their second. Um, so uh, thank God. Thank God we, so far, knock on wood, uh, we've been uh, no challenges at this point. Yeah, my staff in Israel is getting their, uh, their third vaccination uh, today. As Oh, and by the way, last year, as many people will recall, last year you actually took the lead in publishing, I guess we would call, tell me if this is the right description, the bridged machzer for Rosh Hashanah because we anticipated that people would either uh, be home or the services uh, in the synagogues would be shorter because of COVID protocols or nervousness. Um, in Israel, it's a similar, I don't know if we'd say similar, I mean, you could tell us what it's like uh, at the beginning of 5782, but um, I, I would think it's somewhat reminiscent of what was going on last year. Is that machzer going to become popular again? Yeah, so we just released the Rosh Hashanah one, um, which you can get, anyone can get on OTS.org.il. They can just go in there to download holiday material, the gold text of Divri Torah, including a Mazer. And we did it really for two particular reasons. Like, for example, most shuls will have limited uh, seating in Israel, and a lot of us will be davening outside. So it's going to depend on how hot it is outside. Right. You know, uh, you know, it could be... 
74 degrees or it could be 90 degrees. Last yeah. week it was 90 degrees. Right now it's only 75 or so. So if it's 75, it's one thing. If it's 90 degrees, it's a totally different thing. So we put together a halakhically condensed mazler that, that prioritizes health and safety while simultaneously focusing on core halakhic spiritual and liturgical priorities for the Yom right. So the Rosh Hashanah one is out, ots.org.il, and you'll be able to click on something for the Yom Narayim on the front page. And also the other reason is that many of our shlichim throughout the world, you know, we have close to 300 of them. So in some communities, for example, the one who, you know, the ones who are teaching in schools in Teaneck, it's not a big deal. But the ones who are, te- who are in Warsaw or in other places, in South America, or or in Europe, or in or in college campuses, in 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 the UK and stuff like that. They're also the Bali Tfila. So if there's limited amounts of people that can be in a place, right. they don't have other people to be the Bali Tfila. So they'll run three services or four services over Rosh Hashanah um, every morning. So how are you able to do that if it's going to be a four-hour service? It's not going to work. So the abridged mazer allows those who are bali tefila three or four times to be able to do so in a halakhically sensitive and appropriate way. So it's both for the people who will be diving outside. Again, I can't speak to what's happening, you know, throughout North America, although I know many of my siblings plan to daven outside. Um, and I wish I could get my parents to agree to daven outside as opposed to inside. But Baruch Hashem, Admei of Esrim, those will always be challenges <laughs> and good challenges. <laughs> you know that. Maybe, 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 maybe this public plea will help. <laughs> yeah, exactly what I'm counting on. Either I'll have to ask Mafila before Rosh Hashanah, or they'll listen to me, or maybe both. But uh, but the bottom line is that um, but the bottom line is that we really want to have it there, and people will decide, and Rabbanim, most importantly, Rabbanim will decide if they need to use it for the community or not. Right. We've gotten a lot of thank yous already from Rabbanim, and people will make the decision. Right. Um, I, we said we'll never need to use it again. I, I just feel bad for the people in Warsaw and Johannesburg and other areas uh, who you described are responsible for the entire service, because I'm sure last year they said to themselves, okay, you know, one year we could do this, and it's, it is difficult. I can only imagine. I know what it's like just to dive in with certain tefillos, so I can imagine what it's like when you're the rabbi of Balkari and everything else. Uh, but then, you know, <laughs> but then a year later, they're back in the same situation. Could you at least guarantee us, right, Brander, that next year won't be the same situation? Could you at least tell us that? <laughs> Rabbi Siegel, you know that I cannot, uh, you know, you know, no guarantees. <laughs> I would be I would be foolish even to suggest such a thing. But Bezrat Hashem, we'll all be protected if we... Uh, Watch ourselves properly. I hope so, because um, this is uh, it's hard to believe that we're going through a similar, I wouldn't say the same situation, but similar situation one year later. But it does remind me and us, as you just alluded to, that uh, we have zero control over all of this. It's only the one above. And how appropriate as we go into Monday night and the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of Aserah Shemei Tshuva, the Yom Hadin, how appropriate it is that we remember that there's only one being that has any control over any of this. Rabbi Kenneth Brander is with us live via telephone or Torah Stone. By the way, finally, and, and look, we, we admire, and I've read the uh, impact report, and it's really incredible. You went through some of the numbers in Israel. The numbers worldwide are pretty remarkable as well. Uh, what Rabbi Riskin and now you have done and continue to do 
is is amazing in the number of countries. I mean, I, on page 18 of your impact report, I'm sure you've seen this, you have there a description of the countries that are being impacted by Arturo Stone. I'd go through the whole list, but it's it's just, it's insanely long, and it's pretty remarkable that all this has developed over these uh, past few decades. But one of the things that you've done, in addition to all this, in addition to all the education, the shlichim, etc., and rabbis, one of the things you've done is you've taken a very strong interest in the plight of Agunot, which is uh, to be commended, and many people around the world certainly commend your leadership on this. And I think you've even brought it to a, 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 a higher level or a, a, a bigger level once you uh, moved to Israel and became affiliated with OTS. So number one, why does an educational institution or one known best for education around the world spend the time that it does on the subject of Agunot? And what update could you give us regarding the progress made uh, now as we uh, complete 5781 in the area of Agunot? Uh, I think that's a very good question. I think our, our responsibility, our mandate is to make a difference to Jews around the world. And I think uh, one of the biggest Shiloh Hashem, this grace of God. You speak about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, about engaging with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. One of the, is the fact that there are still Agunot, where a, hus- a get that was always used to protect a woman is now being used as a tool against the woman. So, you know, every single year, 690 women receive free free legal advice from us. Wow. We deal with 128 some odd cases a year, and uh Right now, because of Corona, there's 41 Agunot and their children who are receiving supermarket vouchers from us. But I have to just tell you that, um, that um, and we're now promoting very strongly the halakhic prenup, that, that you know, uh, the Russian Shavuot at YU and the Basin of America has done such a good job in North America. Yep. We're now promoting it in very significant ways throughout Israel through social social media, engaging rabbis, engaging young people. But I just want, I'll give you two examples from the past 24 hours. Okay. Just two, two examples from the past 24 hours. So there is a case where a, a woman um, has been trying to get a get for 14 years. And seven years ago, the Rabbanut, that, that, are, that are not easy to agree to this, demanded that the husband give a get and that they insisted on it which takes some time for them to be able to do. So seven years ago, he walked, he told them he'll get a get, but he just needs to walk outside of the big din seven years ago just to speak to his attorney. Well, he walked out seven years ago, and he never was found. Around a year, around a month and a half ago, and this is after the woman has been waiting uh, six or seven years. Um, a A month and a half ago, we found out some additional information about where this person was in Israel, we hired private detectives who found this gentleman, in quotes, uh, having liaisons with a, a single woman. And yesterday he was uh, put in jail because once the rubber note says that you must give a get, which, again, took six years, um, we can demand through the women that we have representing these women in the rabbinical courts accepted by the rubber note, we can demand that they be uh, – incarcerated. So yesterday he was put in jail and either he'll give a get or he'll be spending Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the rest of his life in jail. But please God, he'll give his wife a get very soon because jail is not a nice place to spend time. That's one case. (laughs) Second case is, again, um, 14 years ago, a woman 
uh, and her husband uh, split up. Seven years ago, the Rabbanut said that they needed to give a get. He left um, Israel and went to New York and uh, became a buffer, in quotes, uh, in one of the uh, yeshivot in Brooklyn, and for seven years has been hanging out there and has been given his wife a get, until with great success, with great help from Rabbi Ralbag, who has a, a baked in in Brooklyn, um, worked on this uh, with us. Um, today, uh, yesterday, he wrote a get. Um, I sent out a WhatsApp. So we, there, there's a rabbinic WhatsApp group um, of around 250 rabbis. And I sent out a, uh, a note. You know, we're looking for someone to deliver the get before Rosh Hashanah here so that this woman can walk into Rosh Hashanah, no longer in Aguna. Within four minutes, I had like 30, 30 uh, people who knew people who were going to Israel from JFK. Uh, and then the, the, my colleagues from Yad Isha worked it out that today the get will be delivered. Um, and by tomorrow, she will no longer be in Aguna. Unbelievable. This is just examples in the past 24 hours. And, and by the way, and by the way, I, I think we have to point out because there are those who, who, who sometimes, li- who sometimes like to remind people uh, that there's a, a proper halachic process when encouraging somebody to give a get. So we should mention that even the incarceration and, and all the other elements that you just described in that process, everything is done under the leadership of rabbinic authority. Yes, under the leadership of the chief rabbi in this case. Right. Um, both of them. Um, and and uh, it, this is a, a real serious this was a real serious situation. It, it it takes years before they'll be willing to incarcerate someone. It's just not a flippant thing they've done. But a lot of this could be dealt with if people use halakhic prenups. Um, and so I encourage everybody right. to make sure that we don't let our children or our friends get married without them because uh, life insurance and insurance is important. And uh, it's it's critically important to make sure that we if we really love people, that we we protect them, and it's a really critical thing, and therefore it's a it's a major shalom of this generation. I think our Torah stone, if it really wants to be a center of Torah, has to make this uh, a centerpiece. Uh, I look forward to us going out of business on this. Yeah, no more note. Amen to that. Um, obviously, we're always encouraging people to give to Artura Stone for for obvious reasons. All the education that's going on around the world, people could do that at ots.org.il, ots.org.il. But also, a Yadli Isha that you just described really fits into our Elul Chesed campaign. Is there a way, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but just if there is, let me know. If not, you can let me know another time and I'll announce it. Is there a way for people to specifically earmark funds for Yadli Isha if they want to support Agunot in this struggle? If they go to OTS.org.al and they want to donate, or um, you can donate to particular institutions, and the money just will go there. Uh, so Yadli Shah is um, one of them. That's one of the opportunities. Yes. Okay, great. Yadli Shah is one of them. Because that fits right into our whole uh, uh, concept here of uh, of trying to help people who are in desperate situations. You can confirm that there are plenty of people Yadli Shah meets with every day who are in desperate situations. Right. Way, way too many. Ease the pain of Agunot is on the list, and that money will go above and beyond, you know, what we're spending. Right. And it's either to help our social workers, our private detectives, 
the women who are who are recognized as experts in the halachic experts in the field by 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 Haredim recognized. In other right. words, Bells and Vizhnits and others that we help because forty percent of our clientele are from the Haredi community. Unbelievable. Uh, I didn't realize forty so percent. Wow. Forty yeah, percent. At least forty percent. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, Bell's asked me, uh, right before COVID threw a tish for us, uh, uh, Shabbos Malava Damalka, thanking Ortoro Stone Yabisha for helping several of its, the Rebbe acknowledged several of it, of his, um, you know, chasidot, I guess would be the right word, right. um, who were as we note. And, uh, he wanted to recognize that. So Baruch Hashem, we're doing, I think, God's work. But uh, I hope, I hope that uh, next year, more, you know, we'll we'll get to the point where people realize that this is a terrible chilah Hashem. We have to end. I, I was just going to say, you're making a kiddush Hashem according to every definition of kiddush Hashem, because <laughs> because of who's uh, admiring your work and who's benefiting from your work. So Baruch Hashem. Uh, Rabbi Brander, I take this opportunity to wish you a happy, healthy, and sweet new year. Best regards, of course, Rabbi Riskin, who we love and admire, uh, and everybody at Artura Stone. We do look forward to reuniting with you, please, God, in the coming year. And just keep going strong. The work you're doing is amazing, and uh, the representatives you have around the world are just doing uh, incredible work for so many different communities. It's wonderful to see. We wish you continued Hatzlacha. Thank you, Rav Nachum, and you and your family should only have you should have nachas from all of your children. Amen. And you should have nachas from your extended family, um, and that is the Nachum Siegel Network family, because um, you inspire us and you educate us literally throughout the world. So thank you very much. Much appreciated. Shana Tovara by Dr. Kenneth Brander. Always a delight to speak with him at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world. The web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network. And, of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with my Dr. Kenny Brander. Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky was on to discuss uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Slichus. Slichus had just been completed. The first night of Slichus had just been completed when I spoke with him on JM in the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind. Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky on the Nahum Siegel Network. Our Elul show for blowing here at JMAM, which continues Sunday through Friday until we get to Erev Rosh Hashanah, which will be a week from today. Believe it or not, a week from tonight, the brand new year of 5782 begins. Is that hum- unbelievable? It is unbelievable. Uh, and Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky is with us live via telephone. He's Cantor, of course, at the Parky Synagogue, where I would assume they again kicked off the high holiday season in a grand fashion this past Saturday night, Sunday morning. Cantor Benny, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum, to you and all the listeners. What a pleasure to speak to you. First of all, can you believe it a week from tonight? Can you believe it? It's really unbelievable. When you look at the secular calendar and you think we're still in the perhaps the last week of summer, it's hard to imagine that in a week we're going to be at uh, davening for two full days. Unbelievable. Starts Monday night, everybody. Get ready for a great Five seven eight two. Um, well, what happened this past Saturday night? I had seen a uh, a few um, uh, live stream videos that were going on with different people, uh, either during or after uh, Slichus. I uh, checked out some of the videos, and it looked like some of the synagogues were pretty full. Other synagogues looked like they were really adhering to what we got used to in five seven eighty, 
in terms of social distancing. What happened at Parkey Synagogue this past Saturday night? So the good news is that it happened. There was actually a slichos, the choir was there, the chazan was there. We had a respectable crowd. But we were definitely, the numbers were definitely down because we were following, you know, all the social distance rules. So we couldn't see people right next to each other and people had to be masked. So that deterred a lot of people from attending. I would assume Chief Ganter Helfgott has never davened from the Umud with a mask on, correct? That is correct. That's never been demanded of him. Correct. However, I should say that the choir did sing with masks on, which is not such a simple thing to do, especially on a two-hour repertoire. Such a, but simple, they managed. Such a simple thing to do. It's impossible. Wow. Yes. Yeah, that was one of the miracles of the new year. So just a reminder, last year there was no in-person slicha service? There was an in-person slicha service. It was only open to members, and I think we had less than 50 people. Wow. And the, and the choir did perform last year? No. No, uh, wow. no choir. So just the cantor by himself. Correct. So, so in some ways, for Cantor Helfgott and yourself, this is somewhat of an upgrade. This is this is this is the light at the end of the tunnel that you're seeing. That at least, thank God, there's a choir. Thank God, there's a larger crowd. Uh, thank God, things are somewhat getting back to normal. Yes, that's definitely true. I think the fact that the shul was open, that people could come from far and wide, even though the numbers were not as, as great as they were maybe two or three years ago, but the idea that we had four or 500 people in the shul, that's a very big deal, and it's inspiring. Um, what's going to happen Monday night and Tuesday? Full capacity? You're anticipating less? What do you think is going to happen in the synagogue next week? So we're definitely anticipating less. A lot of people are away, and a lot of people are staying home. They're just still concerned. You know, we have an older membership, so people are in a higher category of risk, and they're nervous. So we're, we are offering davening outside uh, as an alternate uh, minion. Uh, but, but the good news is that we will be going forward. We will have the choir. We will have the chazan. And people will slowly be able to get back into the semblance of what it used to be on the high holidays at Parkies. This is Manhattan. Uh, what type of outdoor uh, area do you have? Is it, does the shul have a backyard or something? So it happens to be that on the, our 68th Street entrance, we have a playground, an open-air playground. So we're going to use that for some of the davening for, for, for a second minion and for chauffeur, people that maybe are not comfortable to come for a full davening, but at least we'll be able to hear chauffeur and then on Yom Kippur say Yisker. So uh, are you going to be working a lot harder than a regular uh, Rosh Hashanah? Because I assume if there's two minyanim that, you know, the cantors have to uh, do double duty, so to speak. Right. I mean, first of all, it's double duty. And then second of all, for Chazanim, who are used to schlep everything out, to do things at, you know, double speed. It's like in the WhatsApp where you can do things today at one and a half or <laughs> two times the speed. It's actually harder to go faster because you have to think to yourself, okay, I can't repeat words so much, and we're not going to get into that old debate. So there's a lot of people who might actually be very happy this year on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Do you, and again, I, I know I keep asking, but I get so confused between all the different synagogues. Last year there was... A Rosh Hashanah service, right? You told us yes. there was. So there, how, there how, how speedy was it? Like, so last year we actually split into two, into two services. I did the first one. I think it was at about 8.30, and Chazan Elfgat did the second one. The entire davening was done in about two and a half hours. Wow. 
Wow. I mean, that's something that I'm generally used to, but I didn't think that you could do it that quickly, especially you guys, frankly. Right. <laughs> we had to practice a lot. How is his voice? You know, we know. I mean, I think a lot of people know that he, you know, did, you know, uh, you worry about everybody who gets COVID. But when you, you know, we have someone who's a world-class cantor and whose voice is critical and we know, you know, how much COVID affects the respiratory system, et cetera, we worry about him. How is he doing? Right. So you're asking actually a very good question because uh, we all know about long COVID and people that recover have all these side effects. And I think the greatest side effect that he was concerned, Hasnelfgat, was the the breathing and the ability to sustain notes, which is his claim to fame. But I have to say from what we heard on Matzi Shabbos, it was fantastic. And in some ways, um, even more moving and emotional. Because I think when you go through a near-death experience, what you come back with, uh, even as a regular misfollow, but certainly as a chazan, is that much more devotion and that, that, that much more recognition of the gift of life. Wow. Un- and you felt that on Saturday night. Yes, I felt it, and it's interesting, a number of mevinim, quote-unquote, and, you know, everybody who listens yeah. to Chazanah thinks they're a maven, <laughs> but uh, a number of people pointed that out, that it was uh, even more inspirational and moving at certain parts of the uh, of the davening. Wow, so you know how inspiring Unasana Tokif's going to be on Tuesday? Right, I'm actually looking forward. You know, it's interesting, uh, we've spoken about this before, one of the most famous cantorial pieces for Slichas is Anenu. Right, the Moshe Kosevitsky was very right. well known to end off the davening with that piece, right. and he sang. Chaznelfkat uh, sang it this year. And when you get to the part Anenu Aviyasomim, right, the father right. of orphans, right. and we know how many parents, how many parents have passed on, yeah. how many children are missing their parents this year. He, he repeated that again and again. It was really a, such an emotional high, wow. and I would say to myself that it, it was different than every other year. What was the array? Kenter Benny's with us from Parkey Synagogue. What was the arrangement before COVID? and what's happening now in terms of his presence at the synagogue. Am I right that he was generally there twice a month in the old days? Yes, he was generally there twice a month. That was reduced somewhat both during COVID and during his illness. Uh, but the idea of the synagogue is to bring that back, hopefully in the new season, which starts right after uh, right after the Yom Naraim. Oh, so it's not, it's not a crazy concept that he'll be here every other week. Correct. It doesn't always work out to be right. every other week, but at least twice a month in, right. in whatever sequence that works. Oh, interesting. So that's a, yet another good sign that things are, you know, are progressing. In other, yes. in other words, you hope to get back to full capacity. It just may take longer than, than you, you know, would like, but you, you hope to get back to full capacity eventually. Yes, that's definitely the goal. And what we did this year, which we've never done before, is we showed Slichos um, on, you know, live on YouTube and on Zoom. Oh. And we got, I mean, you can go up to the YouTube channel on Park East, you'll see there's thousands of people that clicked in between Matzi Shabbos and now. You know, I always say YouTube has an afterlife. Right. So it's like you go to Slichos, you hear it, it's over. But when it's on YouTube, you can listen to it again and again. And for <laughs> those who are inclined that way, they may be sitting and just listening to it once and once over. Yeah, and the so truth is, as we know, Slichos is a, you know, is a weeks long process, so you know it's, it never gets old. Frankly, you know it's not like it's not like someone's you know reliving it, something that happened a few days ago. You're actually living something that's going on this morning. Like the, the, I know it's not the exact same slichus, but still we're in a slichus period of time, so it's really appropriate for people to check it out online. That's true, but Chazan Helfgott was complaining to me yesterday that, you know, by having it online, yeah. all the Mavinim are calling with comments, <laughs> and he should have done this, and he should have done that. He's like, they didn't pay for a ticket, they're watching it for free, but they have all the eights, what he should have done differently. <laughs>
That's a symbol of his success, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I agree. It's a great indication of his success, to say the least. Well, very interesting. And that, so you said you would hear him. So that means you're not going to be leading the outdoor service at the same time that he's leading the indoor service? So what we decided to do is we're not going to run the services at the same time. So the main davening will wow. start at 8 and finish at about 12. Wow. And then I will do the second davening outside, which will start at about 12. But that will be in a bridge service, so it will last right. perhaps an hour, an hour and a half. Wow. And that will include chauffeur, obviously, et cetera, yes. right? Yes. Very interesting. I'll tell you, you really got to be innovative these days. You have to. I mean, it's uh, this whole period has forced us to do that, be it, you know, on Zoom. Yeah. Many people say to us, why can't you be on Zoom right. on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Well, that's a different <laughs> subject. They have to speak to Rabbi Goldwasser or, or your local rabbinic authority. But uh, absent that, we have to come up with creative ways of doing things differently. Yeah. Do you think if it was a late Rosh Hashanah, even with COVID or whatever we call whatever we're in now, uh, you'd have a lot more people? Are people staying away? Dafka, because it's earlier, they'd be staying away even if it was three, four weeks from now. No, I think it's a very good point. There are definitely people that are staying away because of COVID, but right. there are others at the time of year. And the fact that Labor Day, I think, is next Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, it is. So, so I think that has, has induced people to stay wherever they are, in the Hamptons or wherever people go away, right. and perhaps just stay in their local communities. So you might have a bigger crowd if this was a real September Rosh Hashanah, like in the middle of the month or something. Yes, I think yeah. so. Interesting. Boy, oh boy. I'll tell you, this is fascinating. And I, I would guess that in, in some way, shape, or form, every shul, I shouldn't say every, because I think some are behaving as if they're, you know, 100% back to normal, which is fine as long as they're, you know, doing what they need to do. Uh, but I, and they're being safe. But I, I think that every shul or most shuls are going through what you're going through, trying to adjust accordingly and just come up with this hybrid system for Tishrei 5782 coming off of Tishrei 5781 you know you think back a year ago there were you know it, there was a lot of, a lot of serious considerations that were going on Erev Yantiv. people were publishing abridged machzarim uh, you obviously were introducing an abridged service different services outdoor services some shuls as you know have 6 7 services going on at once at all these different locations just to you know adhere to the social distancing so yeah, I'm sorry. Right. I mean, I, I think shuls have had to adjust, and it's interesting. I'll tell you, in our own shul, even though the chazan will be davening and we'll have a choir, it is going to be a shorter service. We've right. gone over the machzor. We've chosen where the highlights are, where we can move things along, and uh, I think that, frankly, many balabatim may actually be very happy with, <laughs> with well, that you, part of long COVID. You were somewhat afraid of that last year, that people would get too used to the, you know, the fact that we could do this, uh, you know, really quickly and efficiently. Let's put it that way. Um, yes, I think, by the way, in some shuls, that's actually what's happened. They yeah. said to themselves, if we could do it shorter, why don't we stay with that? But that's then a it, great formula. Yeah, but then again, Cantor Benny, in all seriousness, I mean, you know, when my father was a rabbi, the sermon every Shabbos was 40 minutes. You know, and today you can't speak for more than 10. You know, it's a, it's a different era. So the truth is that uh, it's not just COVID. Just COVID may have accelerated this process of shortening the davening somewhat. Um, and, if, and if rabbis and cantors are paying attention, they know that there are a lot of people, not everybody, I don't, want to, I don't want to say everybody. Charlie Burnham may get angry at me. But there are, a lot, there are a lot of people who just don't like the very, you know, or prefer not to sit through a very, very long service at this point. That's all. 
Right, but I think the big difference is that until COVID, they had different excuses. Now, right. they're just saying right. it's all COVID-related. So yeah. they'll be happy to stand at the Kiddush for two hours, but in the main shul, they don't want it to schlep. Yeah, because so, you know why they say, you know what they say, the Kiddush is voluntary, Musaf's not, you know. That, <laughs> very true. You know, that's always the difference when it comes to tradition and, <laughs> and it comes to ritual. <laughs> the the, uh, the voluntary stuff is, always seems to be a lot more fun, let's put it that way. Right, nobody's <laughs> running out of shul from the kiddish but uh, aside <laughs> aside for and by the way does hinnany you know i'm saying i'm saying to myself obviously in asana tokif and certain other things are not going to be you know toyed with but will hinnany be shorter than a typical year no, I don't think Hinnany would because that's really the kickoff of the Chazm's davening Musaf, his davening. So I think Hinnany's, we wouldn't touch, and in Sanatokov, we wouldn't touch. But for example, the Chom Aminim, right, right, that might take 10 minutes with the choir, right. will take two minutes this year because we're just going to do it much faster. Right. And maybe Hayom Aras Olam, that we don't have to sing every single one and make a cantorial piece out of it. So areas that are, I don't want to say less significant because everything is significant, right. but areas where we can cut and people don't feel that we've taken away from the sum and substance of the service, I think we will try and do that. Well, it sounds like you were happy to at least be there Saturday night with, an, uh, with a nice crowd and with an international audience. So at least you had that. And uh, like I said, that seems like progress to me. Seems like we're uh, on the road to uh, getting back to what we would call normalcy. It just may take a little longer than we thought, that's all. Yes, I agree. And it's interesting, Nachum, on Matzi Shabbos, when I was done here at Park East, yeah. I traveled, as is my custom every year to Borough Park, to listen to the great Hazen Ben Sian Miller. And I went from a shul by, and by us where everybody was masked and socially distant to a shul that didn't, I don't think I saw one mask, or maybe just one. And it's also a sign was, of the time. Was it packed? It wasn't packed, but there was a, definitely a respectable crowd. Uh, but it was a different, again, it's, a, it's Borough Park. They have a different way of doing things. And it was just interesting to see both communities saying the same prayers but following different rules. What time does he say Ashrei? Well, I arrived at about a quarter to one, and I think they had just finished Ashrei. So about so 12.30 they start Ashrei. Wow. Interesting. And do you think that they had, did they have a Slicha service last year? Did they have a open to the public Slicha service last year? I, I think they did, but I couldn't swear to that. I don't. I don't recall. I know I didn't go last year. Right. But it was nice to see that again. You go into Borough Park and yeah. you see, you know, the different minyan, and you feel that life is coming back. What was Hazen Miller's piece? What was the highlight of the night? I think there were two things. Shema Kuleinu was just absolutely stunning. Wow. And then he had his, sh- his son, Shimi, who is just so talented yeah. with the choir. He and he sang the piece right before Shema Kuleinu, Halbein Chatoeinu Kashelik from Waldman, which was also just beautiful. Who's Shema Kuleinu did he use? There was one you weren't familiar with. Uh, I think it's, it was from Hirschman. Wow. Unbelievable, I'll tell you. You know how to spend the Saturday night, man. <laughs> <laughs> you must have gotten home really inspired, frankly. <laughs> Inspired and overtired. I think I got into bed at 5 a.m. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I went to sleep at 3. I thought that was late. <laughs> Sleepless night always has a special air about it, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. There's something so different about the first night of Sleepless. A very different atmosphere. It's so wild. Amazing. Uh, Cantor Betty, I thank you. I take this opportunity to wish you. Please send our best, obviously, to Cantor Health God, Rabbi Schneier, and everybody at Park East. Uh, happy, healthy, and sweet 5781. And who knows? Hopefully, the uh, the get-togethers that you guys have put uh, have arranged over the years, uh, cantorial get-togethers, etc., will come back. We're hoping because I know that for a lot of people they're important, and a lot of people they're significant and inspiring. And like I said, hopefully, if we get back to uh, having events like that, we will be uh, on our way back to uh, somewhat of a 
of a normal existence. So Bezrat Hashem, uh, uh, you should have a happy, healthy, sweet, and productive New Year. Thank you so much. A good convention to you, Nachum, to your family, and all the listeners. By the way, I think, was your son with my son in NCSY Colo this summer? Yes, he was. Yeah. Fabulous program. So nice. So nice. Yeah, I think I think my kid had a lot of nice things to say about yours. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what a way to end the conversation <laughs> to kick off a brand new year. No one ever minds hearing a compliment about their children. They're one and only. Cantor Benny Rugaznitsky, Cantor at Parky Synagogue, last uh, this past Saturday night. You heard it this past Saturday night under the uh, uh, the incredibly inspiring presentation of Cantor Helfgott. Uh, people both there and around the world got to enjoy Slichus with the choir and more. And um, yet another indication that things may not be 100% back to where we would like it to be, but we're getting there. Uh, here is a piece from Cantor Helfgott. Why not wrap up this segment with one of his great pieces on a uh, Monday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. Ich 
For Shel Mashiach here at JM in the AM, that's the one and only cantor Yitzchak Mayer Helfgott here at JM in the AM. Pretty amazing, huh? Pretty amazing. That was my conversation with cantor Benny Rogaznitsky. Michael Eisenberg has a wonderful brand new book out. I had an opportunity to speak with him. Here's Michael Eisenberg, a recent guest on JM in the AM on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Quarter before 8 o'clock on this uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, Michael Eisenberg, who's been a guest of ours before. We've had the pleasure of having him in our studio here in New York City. He is uh, in Israel. He's the author of the brand new book, The Tree of Life and Prosperity. The Tree of Life and Prosperity. 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. Michael Eisenberg is co-founder and general partner at Aleph an early-stage venture capital fund with over $500 million under management. Aleph focuses on partnering with great Israeli entrepreneurs to build large, meaningful companies and, and impactful global brands. Since its founding in 2013, Aleph has invested in more than 40 companies, including, hope I have these pronounced right, Milio, Lemonade, Bring, Joytunes, Healthy.io, and Nexar. I probably mispronounced one or more, but... Hey, I gave it a shot. Michael Eisenberg, author of The Tree of Life and Prosperity. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum, and thank you for that musical lead, and that's literally my favorite song. Wow. Go figure. No such thing as coincidence, huh? You know, one of the problems, and maybe that's the wrong word, uh, I, I think one of the great things about writing a book that's based on the Parsha of the, of the Week is that people have an option of uh, you know, taking it all in in one sitting or, or following along week by week. And I think that's a great system. And obviously, Parsha books in general and books that uh, follow the Parshiot are very, very popular. The challenge for the author, and maybe you'll tell me it's not a big deal, is trying to fit their theme into each Parsha. With that in mind, are there, in fact, 21st century business principles in every single Parsha of Safer Bracious, and I would say also of the Torah? That's a great question. And by the way, when, when we wrote the book, my uh, editor in Hebrew, Rabbi Amit Miskav, and I debated whether to 
build a book in, in terms of concepts or, or context or to do it by Parsha. And I insisted it be done by Parsha because I think that's, that's how we read the Torah. Right. Um, but mo- most importantly, in every Parsha, uh, there is a topic. And, and the book started as Parshanut. It started as textual uh, analysis and not as a business principles book. And it's written as such. I take the text of the Torah. We look at a given uh, story or set of verses in the Torah they're re-explained through an economic lens going back to the time uh, that it's written uh, or that it happened, and then uh, parallel to something that's going on in modern times. So, you know, just as an example, there's parshanut, um, or explication of the verses in, in the story of uh, Brasis in, in, in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, where uh, Adam and Eve have all their sustenance provided for. And this reminds us, of course, of, of the current debate around universal basic income. Should we just give out money to people uh, so that they can live, and then they'll do great things? Well, we find out that in the Garden of Eden, in Gan Eden, uh, you know, Adam and Eve don't do anything. They're bored. They don't even talk to each other. Eve, Chava, talks to the serpent. And there are no children in the Garden of Eden because there's no work to do. Only once man and, and woman are expelled from Gan Eden, uh, do they get to work, and do they start having kids and, and reproducing? And I think that's very uh, impactful on modern thinking as to whether we should provide sustenance. And by the way, post-COVID, we actually had a try at this because the government gave out checks, and we right. know people aren't coming back to work. Right. We have a living lab of the Garden of Eden. Yeah, no question about it. The first thing I thought of as I was, as I was reading that is that, uh, you know, today, I mean, is it can one say, is, is, it, is it too simplistic to say that it all comes down to whether people are fending for themselves or being provided for? Is that like is that like just a basic principle of economics? But not just economics, but life in general. You're either going to be provided by somebody else or you have to work and make sure to do what you need to do to support your family. I think it's not only uh, uh, about working to support your family. There's value to work in itself. I think the lesson of, of much of Safer Bracious but certainly of the story of, of, of uh, the Parsha of Bracious in Gan Eden, is that there's value to work itself. Like I said, man does not have any children until he begins to work, right. creates bread, deals with thorns and thistles, coats for dardar, and, and, and that in itself is important. And, uh, you know, just getting fed or sustenance or what they call parnasa is, is not sufficient. We need creative endeavor. Right. Uh, so when one goes ahead and uh, and implements real work, real ambition, real creativity into society, the ripple effect, the benefits have such an amazing ripple effect on everybody, as you just said, way beyond just one person and their family. Absolutely, and you know, and I think we can we can take lesson from Abraham Avinu in 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 this regard. So you know, Abraham comes uh, to Eretz Canaan and. We know he comes with his wife and 70 uh, souls uh, and a lot of rechush, uh, a lot of possessions, and Lot, his, his nephew. We only know one biographical fact about Lot, and that is he's an orphan. Right. As far as we know, Abram is a wealthy man, and then there's a famine, and he goes down to Egypt. When they, when they leave Egypt, the Torah tells us that both Abraham and Lot are wealthy. So here we have Abram uh, working hard. He earns more wealth in, in Mitzrayim, in Egypt. Um, but he also seems to invest or partner up with his with his orphan nephew, Lot. And this is part of the value of when we work and then help other people become successful, uh, we have more success. Unfortunately, Lot loses the, uh, he loses the important message, which is that uh, material wealth is supposed to be used for spiritual pursuits, mm-hmm. and it finds himself in Stoma and Amora. 
but you know that's that's another part of the book I get to. Yeah, and 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 by the way, that's not just there. I mean, it's it's similar to I, I think it's similar to how you describe Noah's generation. Uh, it, when there's ex when there's excess, when there's availability, uh, when there's when there's ease when when there's an easier method to earn a living or to get things done, often that leads to problems. And and not to not to depict your presentation as, you know, if you do one way, you have these problems. If you do it another way, you have these problems. But it does seem like every one of these economic directions comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah, I think, you know, in general, life is complicated and we can't simplify it. And, you know, your point about Noah is, is super important. So, we all, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind when we talk about Noah is, who's Noah? Well, he built an ark and, and he saved everyone from the flood. But I think the truth about Noah is, is both more complicated and more, uh, more subtle. And so Noah is an inventor. He doesn't just build and invent the ark. What he does is he first invents the plow. Chazal say that he invents the plow, but it's there in the psukim itself. You just have to look. Um, because what goes on is five generations before Yered, his great-great-great-grandfather, um, decides to start having children at a later age. He's like the Thomas Malthus of his generation. Malthus, of course, is the Anglican priest from a couple hundred years ago who said there'll never be enough food in the world to feed the explosion of humanity. Well, there's now five times as many people, and we're all still here, so everything's okay. And uh, what happens is, is that five generations in, uh, Noah invents the plow, and he's the first person to have three children, and the Torah tells us that uh, population exploded afterwards. But there is more material wealth then because he unlocked the ability to produce more food. Right. That's the first story of Noah, but then humanity destroys itself because of this era of abundance. And then later on, after the flood, Noah plants a vineyard, and he invents chemistry, fermentation, and wine. He's the first uh, creator and drinker of wine, which is an unbelievable innovation, just like the plow is an unbelievable innovation. And wine is like the water of the ancients because it was clean and not brackish, especially after a flood, uh, because it was alcoholic and you can do amazing things with wine, like be happy, et cetera. And Noah, unfortunately, drinks himself to a drunken stupor and is abused uh, by his son, and it ruins his family. And I think what this teaches us is innovation is great, and it's super important and propels society forward and creates errors of abundance. But if we don't have timeless values and values of the Torah to go alongside of it, it goes sideways. And, and Noah went sideways. I think the same is true today. Artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, autonomous vehicles, robots. We have so much innovation that's propelling society forward, but we need timeless Torah principles alongside of it to make sure it goes the right way. Michael Eisenberg is with us. The book is called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. Well, I was about to say to you that you know there's no era of abundance like this era. Uh, you know, we're, we're in COVID, and there's a lot of poverty on this planet, but I don't know if there's ever been a time when there's been more abundance, availability, um, a lot of disposable income, uh, a lot of people spending on things that we never, that our parents and grandparents never would have dreamed that people would spend on these days. Uh, I, I mean, do you? I mean, without what? What are the Torah principles that we should be incorporating into society today that would, you know, stem the tide of the evil that might come from this era of abundance? So I'll say two things about this. Uh, one is covered in this book, and one is actually covered in the book in Tvarim, which is basically written in Hebrew already. Um, so one of the things I advocate for in the book is to remove the dichotomy between business and charity, and that businesses for the 21st century need to be built on timeless principles and ethics. And, you know, that's the case of Lemonade. If you think about the world of insurance, I have bad news for your listeners. 
If they have a traditional insurance company, the insurance company uh, makes money when they're miserable. What does that mean? You had a flood, God forbid, or a car accident. The insurance company is incentivized to reject your claim because they make more money that way. Right. Came along Lemonade, this company I invested in, now public, uh, New York Stock Exchange, and said, you know, we should just take money for managing the pool. We should not make more money when we're rejecting other people in their time of needs. And so they, they take a flat fee for managing the pool. And people get paid properly and are happier customers, and this is the fastest-growing insurance company in the world right now. And there's a reason for that is aligned principles in business will create better brands and companies in the 21st century. And that's what I advocate for uh, in the introduction and, and throughout the book based on Torah principles. But I think in, in Safer Dvarim, particularly in the last week's parshas, the tor- we're not the first people to enter abundance. Am Yisrael, when it goes into the land of Israel, the Torah says you'll find houses you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant, and you'll become wealthy and successful. You'll have a haughty heart, and you'll forget God, and that he gave you the strength to do these things. And I think that's a super important place to be and understand that even if we are talented, like like the Ron says on uh, on the Pasuk of Kochiva Otsimiyadi, you have talents, and you're unique, and you really have accomplished a lot, and they are your talents. But you were born with some of those talents, and those came from God, even if you have uh, accomplished a lot with those talents. Mm. And we need to have that understanding and build businesses that have that understanding. And I think COVID's taught us anything. It's a lot of humility. Well, I understand what you're saying. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you might have the only book that I know of that has both Avraham Avinu and Mark Zuckerberg mentioned in it. Uh, but with, with that in mind, I mean, I don't think any companies are under the microscope now more than ever. Uh, I don't think any companies are more under the microscope about morals and ethics than the social media companies. Uh, I mean, what are, what are your feelings when you see the type of behavior that the leadership of Facebook, Twitter, and the like, and I'll use the names generically, just you know, reminding people what the social media giants are. I mean, what are your impressions when you see some of the things that they undertake and some of the things that you know, the average person really resents? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think in general, um, and I, I, I attack this in, in the book, um, I compare the social media companies, I've written about this uh, recently in a couple of pieces, are, are like Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel. Um, and they have been deplatforming people. There's a lot of power associated there in an attempt to enforce a universal language and a universal way of thinking. And I think that's not okay. Um, I think the lesson of Migdal Bavel actually is, is God did not smash uh, the Tower of Babel. Instead, he scattered the people, giving them their own language and essentially self-efficacy over their culture and their language. Right. And that self-efficacy is important. I think we need the same for social media. I think we need to scatter the social media companies, scatter the social graph, and give people ownership uh, over their data and their social graphs and make them portable so they can develop their own languages. It worries me a lot. And by the way, and, even though it looks bleak, I think we're heading in that direction. Like, I think there really is hope that, that you know, at a, at a certain point, what you just described is going to happen. It, it might. I, I think there's another thing that's really challenging right now, which is the world is accelerating at an unbelievable pace, and technology is accelerating at an unbelievable pace, and, and Zoom and COVID has brought people together globally to work on things that accelerates things further. Governments and regulations, though, are like the Pony Express still. Right. And, you know, this is, this is a clash that's coming, and I think it's a clash between uh, civilizations. Uh, I'm optimistic broadly because I think the Torah is optimistic. Uh, or somebody told me yesterday, Rabbi Sachs says, instead of using the word optimism, uh, we should use the word uh, hopeful, mm-hmm. because in, in hope you have agency, whereas in optimism it's a state of being. I'm very hopeful, and I think um, 
we'll figure this out, but it's going to be rickety, I think, because anytime you have one plate moving in one speed and another moving in another speed, there's friction. There certainly is. Michael Eisenberg's here. It's the uh, Tree of Life and Prosperity is the name of the book. You know, uh, there may not be a figure who um, most exemplifies dealing with a difficult economic situation in the book of Genesis uh, more than Joseph. And you're, you're, a, you're a good businessman. You're somebody who's uh, been around the block, let's say, when it comes to uh, uh, the business world. Uh, I think when one looks at Joseph economically, from an economic standpoint, one can praise him or one can criticize him. Where do you fall when it comes to how Joseph managed a challenging situation in Egypt? So first of all, I'll point out to you that we've now covered uh, uh, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, uh, and now Joseph. And you were wondering at the beginning of the conversation whether there are business Principles and economic principles in in the book of Breshit in the book of Genesis. Right, but but that you know, was but that was more, all over the place. But that was more about the whole Torah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of wondering if I should ask you about Kisavo since we're in that week. But you probably have something you on know, Kisavo, right? Yeah, yeah, that's an easy one actually. Um, <laughs> Tazria Mitzvah is harder. That's correct. But, <laughs> you call this during but, um, the right week. What do you say about Yosef? <laughs> yeah, so uh, Yosef. Uh, is is debated among the the parshanim among the exegetes of the Middle Ages in the modern era pretty vigorously, and it, it breaks into two camps. And I have a third camp personally. Uh, one camp, uh, like the Ralbag and and others, see him as having absolutely saved Egypt, saved his family, fixed the economy of Egypt, uh, and make it work. Um, Rabbi Yosef Bechorshur in, in medieval times, um, Shadal and others see him as not having done such a good job, so much so that uh, Rav Yosef Bechorshor says that Yosef's uh, mismanagement or overshoot uh, caused the the slavery in Egypt. Right. Um, right. And so, but, but my view is, is more complicated than that nuance. I, I, I adopt Rabag and the others who said Yosef did a good job and intentions, uh, and, and ad- adopt what Rav Yosef Bechorshor says and said he caused the slavery, but argue that economies are very complex systems, like biology. Um, economies are very, very complex systems, and when you tinker in one place, you don't know how it's going to be affected different place. And that Yosef really had a great plan, and he invented certain kinds of storage and really understood how to harness the seasons to make this work. But that ultimately, the plan impacted people so much that he had to enslave them and move them off their ancestral lands that it created a lot of resentment. And I think this is a very cautionary tale that even the most brilliant minds, economists, finance ministers, business people, even if they get it right for now, when you tinker with a complex system, you can, you can get into real trouble and overshoot, and they're really unpredictable. In complex systems in general, like Nicholas Nassim Taleb says, uh, need to be anti-fragile, and the Egyptian economy created by, by Yosef was very centralized, which made it super fragile. Um, and broke, and it broke on the Jewish people, on B'nai Israel at that time. And so I think a positive view of Yosef's intentions, but, but a negative view of the outcome, because the system is, is so complex. And, and for what it's worth, that's very relevant to today. You know, we're tinkering a lot with biology. Look at uh, GMOs uh, and vaccines and, and COVID. You know, Anthony Fauci argued in a 2011 Washington Post article that it's okay, we can tinker with the flu virus, um, 
because you know we'll learn a lot from it. And who knows if it escaped from a lab or not? I certainly don't know. But but it, it you know it causes you to have some caution, right. I think, and and to respect the complex systems that that, that God has created. Michael Eisenberg, there, it's, it's, it's a complicated world, as you said earlier, but, but the, uh, reading this book and about the uh, incredible business principles in the book of Genesis uh, certainly uh, makes one think. And I guess if you're writing a book, that's what you want ultimately is to make people think about concepts and about this world in general. The book is, on a, uh, uh, is uh, being released by a publisher called Wicked Sun. How do people obtain the book? Well, you can get it on Amazon. You know, thank God the book hit number one uh, in business ethics wow. uh, over the last bunch of days, and and it's hitting number two in Old Testament commentaries. I hope it's behind Rashi, but I don't know who it's behind. <laughs> and, uh, and but it's number one in new releases in Old Testament commentaries, and it, it's in the top like uh, two thousand books on Amazon overall. So I'm really satisfied with what's going on. And you can buy it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and I hope Simon and Schuster, who's my distributor and publisher, gets it into. Uh, Swarm stores. I, I've tried to persuade them. I don't know if they've they've succeeded to be candid because I'm in Yerushalayim right. and not in uh, in Teaneck or the Five Towns. So, um, you know, I hope it's there too. But Amazon and, and BarnesandNoble.com are clearly the easiest. And if you want bulk orders uh, for twenty five and more, we get you a discount from BookPal. So, um, really, really excited. Like you mentioned, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Avram Avinu, Alfred <laughs> Nobel, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, Matt Ridley, Yosef Yaakov, Yitzhak. We got them all. Uh, <laughs> you certainly do. I'm sure people are curious. Uh, many of us, and I know a lot of listeners, uh, know about some of the companies that you followed over the years and uh, really put uh, resources behind. Is there anything today in mid-2021 that's striking your fancy more than others? Well, we, we I'll, I'll speak about one existing investment and then one trend. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned a company, Healthy I.O., before. I think it's pretty stunning uh, Yonatan Adiri is just a remarkable guy. He was Shimon Peres's chief technology officer when Peres was president of Israel. And his mom mom fell in China on a trip, and he said, it's it's crazy that we have these supercomputers in our park. It's called smartphones, and we can't diagnose things remotely. Right. And he said about transforming the smartphone camera into a full diagnostic device. It started with urine testing. And they launched in Israel and the United Kingdom, and it's exploded there. They do urine testing to, for early detection of kidney disease and uh for UTIs, urinary tract infections, and other things, just using the smartphone camera. It's pretty stunning, and it should be launching in the U.S., I hope, uh, towards the end of this year. They're hopefully clearing the FDA uh, soon. And I think when you think about this, it's really remarkable. Uh, you can create an amazing business making life more convenient for people. They don't just slept to a lab and making it cheaper to provide health care uh, to many more people and doing a lot of good in the world. And I think that's that's being a light unto the nations yeah. uh, with this kind of innovation and, and marrying what I call values create uh, value values create economic value, and and another trend I'm 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 watching pretty hard right now is because the pandemic uh, laid a lot of people off. There is a huge movement uh, in this period they're calling the Great Resignation into self-starting businesses. Right, and self-starting businesses can be lonely though. Yep, and um, I think there's a lot of work to do with technology. One to make uh, sole proprietors more successful. We have a couple of investments in this area. Uh, Honeybrook for service professionals and an unannounced one uh, for other people, but but more to build community around these things. And I'm a big believer in the in the power of these communities, both online and in person, uh, to support people and empower people and partner with people uh, to make a living. And you know, I'll make one more macro comment if it's okay with you. Yeah, but I just understand that one. In other words, I, I, it sounds like a network, but more like a professional 
uh, you know, established network of people who are entrepreneurs and have good ideas, but I mean, and, and are involved in completely unrelated stuff, but there's a lot that they have in common. And it's sort of like a, a professional support group, right? Would that be the right way of putting it? it? Well, yes, but it could be much more than that, right? It could be economic empowerment. Like solo entrepreneurs don't necessarily have pensions. That's provided by big employers. Right. And solo entrepreneurs don't have people who can invest in them. Right. And by the way, they don't have, they don't have the financial tools uh, that big corporations have. And right. we, using technology and the smartphone and, and artificial intelligence today can provide super smart personal financial tools uh, and services to entrepreneurs um, and, to, and to households uh, in a way we couldn't. And we have this company that's only focused on the Israeli market now called Rise Up. It's an amazing thing. They literally provide the value of a family office that's normally targeted at wealthy people to any individual. It's an AI bot that lives in WhatsApp and Messenger. Um, and tracks your finances, tell you how much money you have to spend, and, hey, you can slough off some for savings and put some away for a pension or invest some money here. And they've literally taken many, many, many thousands of Israelis out of overdraft wow. um, just with a bot and AI. And, you know, I, I think that's, again, values create value, and it's, it's creating a consumer community of personal efficacy and financial efficacy, self-efficacy yeah. that's, that's, I think, important. And you're creating economic freedom and independence, and what's better than that? It, Exactly. By the way, on that topic, if, if you'll allow me, sure. I, I've gotten I've gotten asked since the books released a bunch of times when I think about China. Um, funnily, and um, the truth is that in my investment career, and I've been doing this for 25 years, I have not invested in China, uh, neither out of my my funds or or personal account, and and uh, that's actually been driven by the Torah um, in a pretty uh, meaningful way. And, and the reason is the following: uh, before there was freedom from slavery in Egypt, there was no uh, personal ownership. There was no capitalism. Capitalism at its core means you own your property. Right. Think about it. There was no lo tignov, do not steal, and no lo tachmo, thou shalt not covet uh, before the Exodus, because nobody owned anything. And, right. and God takes pains to tell Abraham Avinu that he's going to leave Egypt with a lot of property. Why? Because he wanted them to have private property. That's foundational for freedom. And um, I've always thought that in China, you don't own what you own. Or you think you own, right. and you know most recently is, is China's taken action against tech companies and canceled the Ant.com IPO and others. You know, I, I think this is a cautionary lesson and a reminder to all of us about how important freedom is, and it should not be taken for granted. Well, isn't that a message that you should be transmitting to some of your colleagues and some of the government officials in Israel as they get more and more cozy with China? I have. <laughs> I, I even wrote a blog. I even wrote a blog post about it in 2017. Uh, they got they got me summoned. <laughs> so, That's interesting. Wow, they they behaved like yeah. China with that one, I guess. <laughs> no, it was it was a lovely conversation. It was really a lovely conversation. It, it was the blog post was a conversation starter, uh, as it should have been. Understood, but it's yeah. uh, people wonder about. I mean, look, the, 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 there's no secret here when it comes to Africa, when it comes to uh, Afghanistan, when it comes to Europe, and of course, the United States. People are always wondering about the uh, uh, economic invasion of China, but I think it's happening in Israel also, right? Not, not just Tanuva, but but on a much larger scale. I think it's happening everywhere. It's happening yeah. in the U.S. too, but the U.S. set up a more rigorous CFIUS review board. CFIUS is a an organ of the Senate to, to review transactions by foreign powers. Um, and it needed a it needed a process to get after this. And Israel didn't have one set up. It's, it started to get one set up. Um, and, and the problem in Germany, where the Chinese have brought many robotic manufacturing companies. And by the way, with what's going on in Afghanistan, I'm, I'm pretty certain that China's got some designs on, on rare earth minerals in right. Afghanistan and building the, you know, the Belt Road Initiative, the, the, the train, 
uh, all through Afghanistan and into Europe and Iran. This, this should worry us. And, yeah. you know, we, it, the U.S. got vigilant about it only in the last few years. I think uh, Israel's behind behind the curve on that. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that Afghanistan is is, is home to some of the uh, largest portions of natural resources in the world, certain items. Uh, and, of course, yes. China has uh, an interest in that. Uh, as 5781 comes to an end, and and as we are now in this stage of COVID, I never want to say the end of COVID, especially when it's when we're talking about Israel. Um, would would you evaluate Israel's economy as a strong economy still right now? The answer is yes, um, but in any economy right now, we need to talk about uh, two fundamental economies. There's the technology economy, which has reached escape velocity um, and created untold wealth over the last couple of decades and particularly the last four or five years. And there are other segments of the economy um, that have been under more assault. Um, by the way, the media business has obviously felt this as well, but but right. many others. And so um, the technology economy has, has roared forward. I, I did a calculation. Um, this will blow some people's minds, but that there's so much in eight and $10 billion coming off of lockup. Lockup is what happens when you take a company public and you can't sell shares for cold six or 12 months. Um, and, Israeli IPOs and public offerings have eight to ten billion dollars coming off of lockup in the next six to twelve months. You know that'll drive real estate prices fast uh, higher. And so the tech economy in Israel is roaring, and there are some other parts of the economy like real estate because of that. Those that are roaring, but there's others that not. And by the way, the same is true in the United States, um, where if we all don't do a better job bringing more people into the tech economy, uh, we're going to have we're going to have serious issues uh, on wealth gaps, and we're going to have serious issues. On, on figure out what people are going to do, and so we need to we need to really dig into that um, in a hard way. And your point about COVID is, you know, I, it, I don't know where we're at on it either. Um, uh, in different places, have taken different strategies, which I think, in some measure, reflects the the price tag people put on life. I know that's not right. a nice way to say it, but it's right. the truth. Right. Um, and uh, you know, Israel's taking a hard line on that, but we're having a hard time right now, particularly with unvaccinated populations. Yeah. So. Um, people should go out and get vaccinated. And we, we kind of have to figure out how to get back to life at normal, but we're going to lose a lot of people, unfortunately. You know, it's spreading everywhere right now again. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the variant's any different than the first one. It just, it incubates longer, it spreads faster. We got to we gotta learn to live with it. Simple as that. There are other things we've learned to live with, and we got to learn to live with this and not run away from it and not, not participate in the only quarantine of healthy people in the history of the world. Um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned something about the technology and how we have to step it up here in the U.S. Without a strong, I, I don't know if that's possible without a really strong public school system here in the U.S. And I don't think they're equipped for it, uh, both in elementary and high school level, to you know to to train uh, or at least familiarize young people with what you're looking for, uh, more of a uh, a strong acumen when it comes to technology. So one of the things that I think the Torah teaches us, uh, I was giving a lecture two nights ago on this. And it's particularly true in Vayikra, but it's all over the place. What does that mean? And your brother will live with you. And live just it doesn't mean he'll be alive. It means he'll, he'll flourish. And I think the Torah guides us to a civic responsibility. And I think that civic responsibility is if I invest in my fellow and don't just wait for the government to do it, then the pie, the economic pie grows. Yep. And I think that that's at the heart of what the Torah thinks. It's not just what, like the Rambam says, that the highest degree of, of charity of tzedakah is to do business with somebody. It's, it's fundamental. If you partner with someone, invest with them, um, you know, the, the economic pie grows. And so, 
you know, I think all your listeners shouldn't wait for the government to do this. They won't. They can't. Yeah. And it's yeah. not their fault. Right. If they're still living in the Pony Express, it's a civic responsibility. Right. 100%. Uh, Michael Eisenberg, the book is called The Tree of Life and Prosperity. We're highly recommending it, everybody. It's on Amazon and a variety of other places. The Tree of Life and Prosperity, Michael Eisenberg. I take this opportunity to uh, wish you a happy, healthy, and sweet new year. And this was really enjoyable. Thanks for joining us this morning. Malcolm, thank you so much for having me again. And uh, I, I, what I'm trying to do with the, with the book, and the one will come after it, which will be called uh, Everyone Can Be Moses, uh, <laughs> Everyone Can Be Moshe, is... Well, you know, it's out in Hebrew already, even right. so I know what it'll be called in English. And I'm just, I'm trying to start a conversation. So the extent people pick it up and either read it week by week or read it in one sitting in the middle of the rabbi's drusha. No, no, <laughs> just kidding. Um, we, we, uh, you know, I, I love feedback, reviews, uh, and just to have a conversation. So uh, thank you for having me here, and thank you for having this conversation. And keep up the great work you're doing. And shana tova, ktivav chatimatova. Tadarabad, shana tova to you. Wednesday morning broadcast. You're listening to JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Michael Eisenberg. Thanks so much for tuning in to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up all day and all night at the Malcolm Siegel Network.